Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the Apostrophe Podcast Network. Welcome to the Surviving Life Podcast. I'm Les Stroud. The goal here is to motivate you, inspire you, maybe even light a fire under you as a direct result of listening to people who are inspiring in that they have lived their lives with meaning, with goals, with intention. And so can you. And frankly, so can I. Heck, I mostly had these conversations for my own edification. I want to learn about better ways to live. I want to achieve my own goals. I want to constantly strive for excellence, for something more, maybe even something better than where I'm at now. I'm not so much talking about a legacy, more just living effectually. And this desire will never ebb for me. My agenda, and I hope perhaps yours too, is to remain productive and vital until the day I die. And I intend that to be a long time from now. So let's survive life together. Hello, everybody. You're surviving life with Les Stroud. Bruce Coburn is a Canadian legend and a world-class talent. He created a musical interpretation of life uniquely his own. No one has been able to replicate the sound of Bruce Coburn. His craft on the guitar is an odd blend of Mississippi John Hurt, jazz, and classical techniques. So the legend goes. When Eddie Van Halen was asked what it felt like to be the best guitar player in the world, he replied, I don't know, why don't you go ask Bruce Coburn? The cadence and syncopation of Bruce's singing and spoken word are inspiringly unlike anyone else you will ever listen to. The smooth, calming tone of his voice often hides the dark and deep meaning of his lyrics. The evocative imagery of his words, whether beautiful or dark, are so insightful they immediately transport you into the world he creates with his inner vision. Often his art is much like a Trojan horse, so you better be ready when Bruce Coburn sings. Bruce scored the music to my film, Lalosh, about a school shooting in an indigenous community in northern Canada, but I've been listening to him since I was 14 years old. I got in a high school fight once because somebody had misinterpreted his lyrics. That's something I discovered about Bruce. He likes fighters, yet despises violence. To set the scene for you, we sat in my music room at my house with the doors open, so you may hear the sound of the loons calling in the background. These are the words of Bruce Coburn. The first people to die are the peacemakers. That's a tragedy. It shouldn't be that way, but that's what happens. The peacemakers stand up and go, look, we can work this out, and somebody shoots them. I feel like it comes from God, but it comes through me. At the feast of Sometimes be cruel, but under certain conditions, you have to forget the rules. Time. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> I think that's really what it's about. Sunset is an angel weeping, holding out a bloody sword. No matter how I squint, I cannot Make out what it's pointing toward Sometimes you feel like you've lived too long Days drip slowly on the page 
catch yourself facing the cage. Something that I've always found that I really admire in, a, in an artist are large bodies of work. So I'll, I'll hear stories about somebody like Frank Zappa, 54 albums. Even in my own work, uh, say as a filmmaker, I came to a point where I, re- where I realized I'd produced over 100 documentary films and I thought, wow, that's a good number. I hit over 100. I think you're on your 34th or 35th album. The new album is the 34th. Yeah. yeah. What is it that makes you be that kind of artist, the prolific artist? Time. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> I think that's really what it's about. Zappa died younger than me, but, uh, and made 54 albums or whatever he did. And so, you know, I'm not working at that pace and the whole experiences that accumulate to produce song lyrics, let's say, uh, take time for me. I don't, I don't have like millions of ideas where that I just, that just have to be got out onto the paper, except sometimes. And then whatever I've been living through for a year or less than a year or maybe two years will suddenly kind of want to be talked about or want to be expressed in some way. And then out it comes. And you, you don't think that encapsulating it, like what I'm, or who I'm thinking of particularly right now is I heard Billy Joel say he did 10 albums and he's done. He said, no, that's a good, nice round number. I mean, that's good enough. <laughs> It sounds like you don't fall in line with that philosophy. No, I mean, I don't, th- I don't make any rules about it at all. If I, if I don't think of any more songs, then I won't make any more albums. But if I keep thinking of songs, then I'll try to keep recording. I mean, this, it, it, the whole process has slowed down o- over time. I mean, we put out an album a year in the 70s. The, the touring load and, the, and the, I mean, the rest of life was accommodating of that kind of uh, pace because you know, I, I was only touring in Canada until the very end of the seventies and a Canadian tour for me, you know, if I put all the gigs together, it would take, I could do it all in a month and then you have the rest of the year to hang out and, and think of things or experience things and digest them and, and, and feed that creative fuel stash, you know, as things got busier and, you know, I started touring further afield and all that sort of thing that like, even right into the eighties or kind of right away at the beginning of the eighties, it changed after wondering where the lions are. So, you know, suddenly I'm touring in the States and you could spend a month just doing shows within driving distance of New York city. So there's that, that much more work to be done. And then you add in Europe and other places and, you know, it's kind of nonstop if you want it to be. That speaks to the sort of the mechanics of managing the time, being an artist, performing mm-hmm. the material. But what is it that feeds you in that spiritual, emotional, artistic sense that would prompt continually writing, like writing, writing when you do, I should say. It's kind of like asking, where's the inspiration come from? And, and I, I suspect it's a kind of narcissism. I think, I, I think it's like, oh yeah, this is happening to me and I, I'm, I'm very moved by this and it means a whole lot. And it's got to it's got to be the same for you so here it is i mean under underneath all the art and whatever else there, there's something like that you know i think we all want everybody to love us you want to put out things that make that make people feel i mean it's not as simple as as you know one having everybody want to hug me but it intellectually it sort of is you know the intellectual equivalent of that you want people to respond just kind of be there in the world in a, in some measurable way I think a lot of us feel like that. And if you're an artist, you actually have a chance to, to put that into kind of a physical manifestation. But I don't know, you can second guess all this stuff. Really what it comes down to is the writing, what it feels like is it's a kind of a biological urge, like the pressure builds up and the pressure builds up and, and you don't notice it for a long time. And then I, I, I'll, I'll find myself and be walking down the street one day and I'll think, Geez, I really feel like I should be writing a song. I want to write a song now and I don't have any ideas or anything, but you know, within a, a, a few weeks of starting to feel that feeling, stuff comes out and it might be a year between having that feeling, the, you know, the occasions of having that feeling. But when it's in there and the pressure builds up, then it, it wants to come out. It's just, it's kind of like a bowel movement. <laughs> and, and oftentimes that's what it sounds like too. <laughs> well, Maybe not yeah. in your case, but with well, some I artists. Hope, I hope not to have it sound like that, but, that, <laughs> but you're, the risk is always there, of course. <laughs> There's an interesting distinction there between the, the art, the piece, the, uh, what I call it, I, I call it like, it's like a ball of energy that can have its own life. But there's, two places where it can emanate from. One, you're speaking to it emanating from within. Do you 
agree with, uh, let's say, sort of the Tom Waits perspective that it's almost also like it's a ball of energy that already exists. It's kind of floating around looking for the right vessel, looking for the right outlet to land, whether that's a Bruce Coburn as he's walking along, or is it coming from in, inside you or, or a bit of both? That's a, it's an interesting notion that it's not something I thought about. For me, it, it, it comes, I feel like it comes from God, but it comes through me. I mean, it, it, when I'm aware of it, it's coming up from inside. The writing is, is affected so much by circumstance and the circumstances, you know, I feel like we're kind of put where we're put and we're, we're exposed to the things we're exposed to for, for some reason. Others don't feel that way, but I do. And, you know, I'm, I'm always looking around going, well, okay, you know, what, what am I doing here? Why am I in this place now confronted by this thing, whatever it might be, positive or negative? If a song comes, it's going to reflect some aspect of, of that kind of way of, of being in the world, right? So You believe in fate? Um, not exactly. I believe in, in that, in, in a big finger stirring the pot. <laughs> and, like and the Monty Python big finger of God? Yeah, yeah. In, in effect, yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, every now and then I'm, I find myself very aware of that big finger stirring things and you kind of feel like there's stuff going on and it's like, well, what the hell? What's this going, uh, all about? And you think, okay, well, if, if you choose to have a relationship with the divine, then you're going to be aware of this kind of thing, right? Or you're going to be, you know, have a relationship that isn't much of a relationship that's based on whatever's in whatever book you hold sacred, and uh, and and you're not going to be paying attention to those little intuitive things or to the to the uh, the promptings that you get. For me, part of the job of being here on the planet is is to cultivate and nurture that relationship, and and to be responsive and receptive to those promptings. It, seem, it would seem to me that you you've employ nuances when you do what you're speaking about, which is as opposed to a pablum, you know, and for the masses sort of thing. There's nuances in, in, in your work. It, it, even in the filmmaking I've done, I, I felt I employed as an artist nuances that I hoped that the intelligent viewer, listener, would pick up on. And many didn't, but though when someone did, I went, ah. There it is. And your music is full of nuances. I appreciate subtlety. And I think that it has a lot to do with the, the writers I admired when I first discovered poetry. First time I remember really getting a poem was in grade six. We had to pick a poem to memorize out of the, the textbook that we had. And there was a whole bunch of poems. And most of them were not interesting to me or were too long and difficult to, to want to take on memorizing them. There was a poem in there by Archibald MacLeish called Ars Poetica, and a poem about what he thought of as the proper way to approach writing poetry. It was pretty short, and it it, it was just full of this the, this imagery that just jumped off the page at me. A poem should be palpable and mute as a globed fruit. A poem should be motionless in time as the moon climbs. I mean, it just these these things. Just I got shiver, shivers reading it. And I had I'd previously, you know, okay, we've studied rhyming poetry. The, the highwayman came riding, 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 that kind of stuff, right? And some of that was okay and interesting, but it didn't ever hit me until this, that moment. And then I jumped from that to T.S. Eliot and Dylan Thomas and the, the, the other poets of, that, of the 20th century that we studied in, in school. That became my model for using language. You know, I've always been, I, I still am a, a fan of poetry. So, um, are you a poet? I stopped short of calling myself that because I'm afraid to call myself that um, because it invites comparison with T.S. Eliot and Dylan Thomas and others. But I certainly use language in a poetic way in my songs. I try to. Somebody described the difference between poetry and, <clears throat> excuse me, prose as a, Telling you something in poetry is basically painting you a picture of something. It's an oversimplification, but it's, it's, it's one way to get at the angle of approach that goes into to my songwriting. Let's say I don't, I'm not telling stories so much as I'm showing scenes. It's a bit more like being a filmmaker, actually, the way I write. As a lot of my songs, it's, it varies from song to song, but a lot of the songs take the shape of scenes with a kind of chorus that unites them. Or, or connects them in some way. And, you know, can, how, how vivid can you make that scene? And how much kind of emotional oomph can you get in there? 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're surviving life with Les Stroud.
I'm just sort of, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm thinking of so many of your lyrics. You do seem to really take the time to paint that. I mean, one could argue you're telling a story by painting a picture or telling a story using prose poetically, but that always was a reality for me of saying, okay, I mean, look at if a tree falls, you know, rainforest, mist and mystery, teeming green, you know, th- those are, those are, that's very evocative of, of the rainforest, but then you kind of, then you bring it home with the last line, almost like a message. It's our green brain and it's facing, and it's uh, uh, facing lobotomy. lobotomy. So you've got poetry, painting, and then kaboom, line of interest of, of, the message. Yeah. What kind of currency grows in the, in these new deserts, you mm-hmm. know, like that, that's or, or new floodplains. I mean, is, is, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Is there a battle in your mind when you write something like that between how poetic you are versus how di- didactic or how straight you are? No, it's the struggle is just to think of the next thing. Yeah. Whatever it is. I mean, I'll know it when I, when I get it. Sometimes I settle for less than what I want because I can't think of anything better. And then sometimes if a song sits there for a couple of weeks, I will think of something better. Do you scratch much out on your pages? Um, Yeah, quite a bit, often. Or there's big spaces. I mean, I'll write four lines one day, and then three or four days later, I may think of the the next four lines. Sometimes a song comes out in an hour. It it really varies a lot. And the spoken word things tend to take longer, like if a tree falls. I mean, those things take longer to write usually because because the field is so wide open mm-hmm. and you're not necessarily dealing with rhyme and you're not necessarily dealing with, with even a, a verbal rhythm. It's just, you know, what can, what works, but you know, with a song that, that has a rhyme scheme and a, and a, a rhythmic pattern to the lyrics, then those limitations make it either easier or impossible depending on, on what you're doing, you know, um, and, and things tend to go faster. I want to carve it back to what we were talking about earlier. I could say it this way. What's your point? You know, I, mean, I almost want to do it that way. That, well, what's your point, Bruce? What's the point of, of, of the writing that you do? What, what is the mission or the point behind Bruce Coburn when he, and, I'm, and I am speaking predominantly lyrically uh, at, this, at this. I think of my songs as lyrics. I, I, I hardly ever think about the music when, when I'm asked about songs. Okay, the issue of lyrics starts with, if you're going to have lyrics, they might as well say something. They should be good. Otherwise, what's the point? Just play the music, you know. And there's lots of, lots of wonderful instrumental music out there that's perfectly legitimate and, and uh, you know, in some ways it, it affects you differently and, and sometimes more deeply than things that, with, that are pinned down with words. But if you're going to use words, then you've got to work on them. You've got to have them say something and you've got to, and, you know, reach out to a listener, the hypothetical listener, with those words. I do, I do it in a pretty haphazard way. I, I don't have a method. I just, I guess if, if, an, if an outsider looked on, they could say, well, the method is you just wait mm-hmm. and sit there and your notebook stays blank for a long time and then, then you write something That's in your it. That's your method. Was, was, there, was there ever a gen, an, an agenda in your mission as an artist? Not much. Uh, I mean, in the beginning there, I went, I had about a year, the year in 1970, I guess I thought, well, you know, writers write like real writers write every day. And they, so I tried writing every day. And by the end of the year, I had about exactly the same amount of usable material as I would have if I just waited for the good ideas. So, (laughs) so I, I I scrapped that notion and, and uh, I just, I've spent the rest of my life waiting for the good idea. There have been times when I've come back from somewhere from from Mozambique or from Afghanistan or from Iraq, rather, where I really wanted to write something enough to force it. I don't usually do that. I mean, when somebody asked me, I mean, we worked on your film. Well, those weren't songs, but uh, but that music was, in a sense, forced because I had taken on the job of writing music for your film. And, and so, okay, you know, I have to do this now, whether I feel it or not. And it doesn't take very long to get into the feeling mm-hmm. once that's there. With songs, it's a little more complicated for me, but, uh, but I really wanted to write something about Iraq. I came up with This Is Baghdad, and I think the recording of it came out pretty well. But I don't think it's my best song. And I, uh, you know, it was frustrating. It took a long time to get what I got, just to try to organize the experience and the, the thoughts and, and the imagery um, into some communicable form was hard work. 
um, the mines of Mozambique wasn't so hard. Well, because I was in Mozambique longer, I, I suppose, partly too. I had a better sense of the place. Most songs don't require that much forcing. It's just a, because I've waited. And, you and know. if you are forcing it, do you find yourself telling yourself, oh, I should take a break, I'm forcing this? Um, no, not because the only, the only time I force it is when I really want to get the thing, you know? And then and so it's like, okay, well, I, I, you know, I really want a, a song that talks about Baghdad, about what it felt like to be there. Which informs which or what informs what when you come back from a place like Mozambique? Is it a slew of words and you know you're just going to noodle until you find what fits with those words? Or is there an aggression in your playing that informs the lyric uh, after? Which, which comes first? The lyrics come first, then the, and the feeling of of wanting to to share with people what I experienced or thought. I usually write with a sense of a rhythm in my head. It may not end up being the rhythm that the song finally has in it, but uh, but I'll always have some kind of musical element in my head, not a melody, but but some kind of riff or that gives me something to hang the lyrics on. The process of adding music to it is. Actually, all of the, all of my songwriting is kind of like scoring a film. I've got images. I've got a, a story, if there is one, and uh, you know, characters or whatever that need to be supported by the music, but not inundated by it. So, you know, I mean, some people I think of beautiful melodies, and then they find words to go with them, and that works great. There's a lot of wonderful songs that were written that way. Most songs, I think, probably are written that way. For me, it just I. I'm not very good at sitting around either thinking of a melody or thinking of lyrics when I have a melody. You know, it's, it's too hard. I, I'd rather work from the words. They're, it's easier to manipulate the music. What was the first protest song you remember hearing? Probably Where Have All the Flowers Gone. Um, I think, and it was probably the Peter, Paul, and Mary version of that that I heard, although I might have heard Pete Seeger's own version of it earlier. I'm not, I don't remember now, but I was in, I guess, you know, somewhere in, in high school, when that when those songs kind of came around what what defines a protest song for you do you think um i'm not sure i like the term all that much i don't use it myself about my own things at all uh i it's i mean obviously other people do and and fine but if i if i can answer that in, in personal terms it, they, when i write a song about something quote unquote about something i'm writing about that thing i it's how i feel about it is going to show up in the song so if it if i happen to be writing about landmines and that's what I want to write about. There's there's feelings associated with that. There's what what is what does the presence of landmines in a landscape mean? So it's going to sound like a protest song, because it's got feeling, and it's and it's talking about a concrete thing like that. If I if I write about um, well, there's an old song or an '80s song called "Gospel of Bondage" because I was really offended and continue to be by certain strains of Christianity where people celebrate their self define superiority over everybody else and who think that they have the right to tell everybody else how to be that kind of that strain of christianity tends to be associated with right-wing politics and and uh, all kinds of abuses of all sort so i wrote a song about that because it was t it touched me personally i consider myself a christian i'm not i'm not affiliated with that kind of christianity but i don't completely write off people who are because everybody's had got their life and their story and they, they are that put them where they are but i don't like it and so so i wrote a song about that and it's quite critical and so that you know would sound to some people like a protest song but it's just me basically bitching about <laughs> about what i don't like yeah right? it, it would would you say that it's more of a protest song if it's pointed, uh, you know, uh, certainly directed at a specific issue or person or problem or, or regime rather than, uh, well, for example, when I was listening to this one sort of talk about it, they were you know, saying like Sunday Bloody Sunday is not really a protest song. It's just sort of a lament as opposed to, you know, uh, something that, uh, um, you know, Woody Guthrie might have done where you're really focusing the lyrics on somebody. If I think of the 60s where, where I've became aware of that term where most of us, I guess, you know, became aware of the term protest song. It was a category. It was a way for the music business to categorize something or for journalists perhaps to categorize something that, that just as a short form really, because you don't want to have to sit there and explain why Bob Dylan wrote Masters of War, for instance, right? That's a gorgeous song, a fantastic song and a, and a powerful one. And that's the good end of what people called protest songs I, in my mind i mean it's not the only thing but it's it's one of the good things 
at the other end of the spectrum is something like uh, uh, Eve of Destruction, which just sounds like it was written for profit. You know, okay, protest songs are in this year. We're going to write this song and we're going to complain about everything in sight and not offer any depth or anything. I mean, you can hear a song called I'm an American Soldier. I don't know the difference between Iraq and Iran. Those are kind of protest songs, yeah. these country songs. And, and yet they're protesting from a position of self-professed ignorance. Right. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I got feelings about it. Well, okay, that's a legitimate position to express. And the complaint there is, the implication is, people who don't support our troops are somehow the enemy, mm -hmm. even if they're the person next door, you know. And what does support our troops mean? Well, then, then you have to have a discussion of what that actually means. Mm -hmm. You can pray for your troops and that's a kind of support, or you can send money to USO and... and and they will send toothbrushes and phone cards to the troops and, and stuff like that. And, or you can go join the army or, you, you know, bring up your kids to want to fight people. There's all these different things. But, uh, you know, and you can vote for politicians that want war. So that's why, I, 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 you know, it's in that context that to me those songs, those country songs that talk like that are, in, are a, perhaps not protesting. They're, they're more, what would the word be, sort of encouraging. Firing people up like a rallying rally cry yeah in a way and and it's it appeals to to the sentiment in, in us and i don't want to slag those artists or those songs really because uh uh they're expressing something that i imagine feels true to them and and that's what they should be doing but you know there's a discussion to be had around all that that's all i think there's this danger and you were touching on this uh, when you said uh, Eve's, Eve's Destruction, for example, and, and for you, it felt like that was seems pretty commercial. And there's a danger there is, is potentially words might seem like they are meant to be a bit of a rallying cry, a strong opinion about a political state or something like that, but it's served up on a bed of pop, let's say, you know, mm -hmm. pop rock uh, sort of thing. And so the question then is, is the message lost when it's painted with too many colors, too pretty? And, and I think you can make anything work. It's just how it depends on how well you do it. And after that, it depends. I mean, it's, it was something that gets a massive amount of media exposure eventually loses its power because you just heard it too many times. And then you hear something else that might come along that might be a great song that talks about the same issue. And you're tired of that before you even hear it because you've heard this other one so much. So that kind of can happen. That's a danger. The big issue for an artist is just to do it right. There's no reason why Katy Perry should be written off just because her music is pop music. I mean, she's, some of her songs are saying important things. There, there's a range, all these things. You can have a pop song that talks about something meaningful, or you can have a pop song that just uses cheap rhymes and says basically nothing, you know, uh, or basically I, I'd like to sleep with you or whatever. And, and, and all kinds of complicated ways of, or, or, or less complicated repetitions of how to say that, you know, with, that goes with music. That's the, the gist of most pop songs. Either I want to sleep with you or I, I wish I hadn't. <laughs> do you feel there's a, or do you yourself use irony at all? And, and if so, is the irony end up getting lost? And, and, and I'm thinking, here's a, here's a great example of what I'm talking about. The Randy Newman song, uh, Rednecks. I don't know if you're familiar with that mm, yes, song. Yes, I am. Yeah. So uh, it turns out that Randy now, um, uh, he, he actually had, he stopped playing it in concert. And he stopped playing it in concert because... The rednecks at his concerts used it as their rallying cry, even right. though the irony is yep. that he was kind of, he was completely denigrating them in what he was saying. Uh, but it's, it's like politicians keep keeping on trying to use Born in the USA, thinking it's right. a patriotic song. And it's absolutely not. No, it's very critical. It's, it's yeah, I mean, it's, that's a good song too. So what happens when the irony so, is actually lost? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a risk you just have to take. I don't yeah. think you can, if you try to head that off, then you're going to be involved in self-censorship and that's the killer. Mm. So uh, you can't really... You're going to be too obvious. You, you, can, you can, yeah. I think, well, you just don't say what needs to be said maybe because, be, you know, or the best way you could say it because you're worried about external things that don't really have anything to do with the process. You, I don't think you can worry too much about that. I, after the fact, yes, and then, then you pay attention to those things and how are people taking it? I mean, I had... If I had a rocket launcher, it was a hit because it was angry sounding, mm -hmm. not because people sympathized with the situation in Guatemala, but 
a lot of people heard about the situation in Guatemala because they responded to the song. So, you know, they were they were drawn in. When I wrote it, I wasn't thinking of <clears throat> of propagandizing. I was thinking of I was crying when I wrote that song. I it, I was so moved and so outraged by what I had encountered in the in those refugee camps in Chiapas.
You're surviving life with Les Stroud. I was uh, really outraged by the stuff that I'd seen in, in these refugee camps in Chappas that I'd visited. And uh, I wanted to communicate that sense of outrage. I wasn't sure about putting it out there at all because of what it says. Uh, you know, I didn't want it to be interpreted as an exhortation to go out and kill Guatemalan soldiers, even though that's kind of what it says. What I wanted to show with that aspect of the song was how easy it is to get into that mindset when you're in a situation like that. And therefore, my peace-loving peers shouldn't be critical of people who take up arms in, in a context like the, what, the military dictatorship of Guatemala because, because uh, they have no choice. They're, just pu they're pushed to that point. They're, they're, the choice is to sit back and watch their children die for lack of medicine or watch the guy with glasses be tortured to death because he's wearing glasses and that may, means you might be able to read and therefore he's a threat to the dictatorship. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that was going on routinely. So eventually people get pushed to the point where they're going to fight about it. We can't tolerate this any longer. Or they're under attack and they have to respond somehow. You know, the, the alternative is, is death. And the, when you look at those situations and like the situations with civil wars all over the world, the first people to die are the peacemakers. That's a tragedy. It shouldn't be that way, but that's what happens. The peacemakers stand up and go, look, we can work this out and somebody shoots them. So then you're left with the people who, who can look at that and go, well, that happened to him. And he was the guy with the brains and the, and the will to actually, and the courage to stand up. And so, you know, I'm out. Of, I'm either out of here as a refugee or I'm going to be fighting back. My, my hope with Rocket Launcher was that people would understand that that's where it was coming from. And, and some people did, luckily. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of people did get that. I mean, other people said, uh, you know, would just say, oh, yeah, I love that song. You know, it's, and, and you get people, whenever, when the last line comes, some son of a bitch would die. <clears throat> Audiences cheer, which always gives me the creeps. Um, and I, I sang that song in a big circus tent at an English festival one time. It was a 2,000 people in a, in a circus tent, and they all sang along with it. 2,000 English people saying some son of a bitch would die is awe-inspiring <laughs> and terrifying. It's people responding to the feeling. And in that context, I wasn't worried about the misinterpretation so much. But but um, but it can be taken, like the, but, the Randy yeah, Newman example, well, yeah, it can I mean, get taken out of context. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm in Kandahar and, I, and we're out on a forward operating base and I, uh, we did a little impromptu concert for, at lunchtime for the troops. And these guys, they're, they're men and women, mostly men, that, that uh, were kind of haggard and you know, living right on the edge. As, you know, he said, well, they, just on the other side of that hill, it's the Wild West. You know, and there, there's a big lineup of, of leopard tanks waiting to get ready to go and all this stuff. I sang a couple of songs and I sang If I Had a Rocket Launcher because it seemed like the, the one that... It seemed appropriate. I said, well, not for the reason that I wrote it, right. but it seemed to fit. And that's the one they really liked. I mean, they, when, when they, most of them were francophone, uh, so they didn't get it right away, but you could see the, the, the muttering, the whispering, did you hear what you just said? And then, uh, you know, then they're sort of cheering. You know, and have to uh, you have to give them that that the license to interpret it how they want in their in in a situation like that because these people are are really up against it. But now, that's an interesting thing you touch on there when you give your listener the license to interpret something in any, any which way they want. Seal, I remember Seal saying, I, "I don't mind mumbling my words because they'll put in their own words and meaning." And I always thought, well, "I don't, I know, no, I." I like Bob Dylan's words. I like knowing what the words are saying. Yeah. I, li I like knowing what the artist meant to say. I can still extrapolate. And sometimes if we misunderstand, I mean, so, sometimes I, I remember thinking, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I'm thinking, why would I not want my shepherd? Yeah. <laughs> like, what, what, does that mean? what does that mean? And <laughs> no one ever explained it to me. You know, people do that with songs, right? You, you, you hear it a certain way and it stays that way with, for you. And, then, and often you don't find out until years later what, what the writer actually meant. Somebody I know heard um, Last Night of the World where I'm sipping... Florida Canyon, it's 3 a.m. And, and <clears throat> one person I know said, oh, gee, Florida Canyon, what's that? I thought it said Florida Canyons. I'm going, well, there aren't any canyons in Florida. <laughs> oh, I know, but I thought that was poetry. <laughs> Poetic license. <laughs> so there you go. You know, I mean, we can make all the pronouncements we want about the value of poetry and everything, but you have no control over 
once it's out there, over what people are going to make it into, or, you know, as example, Born in the USA, or as, uh, I mean, any number of other songs that have a catchy chorus and people don't listen to the verses. Well, I've, I've often, uh, I've had arguments with uh, fellow friend, musicians of friends of mine where they said, no, 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 the lyrics don't matter. It's the whole package, this and that. And, and I remember one time the, the when it was a drummer and he was saying, uh, no, no, he goes, like, take, take yesterday, for example. You know, um, Paul McCartney sat on that song for a year and, and he had scrambled eggs in the place of yesterday for the longest time until, you know, so it shows you, you know, words, words don't matter. I'm like, no, you actually just made my point. Yeah. The song isn't yeah. called scrambled eggs. It's called yesterday, scrambled eggs yesterday. For a reason, uh, the wor- the words really do matter. Even, even blues, I'm a passionate lover of blues, as I, I think I know uh, as you are. The best blues, if you really listen, you know, when Sunhouse says, you know, woke up last night between midnight and day, hugging my pillow where my baby used to lay. That sounds simple, but it but it's powerful. Yeah, of course. It's a, it's, it's a visceral human experience expressed in a clear and passionate way. And, and lyrics don't have to be complicated to be good. There's a whole, you know, one, another angle from the one I take. I mean, it's not how I operate, but I've been asked sometimes, you know, well, how do you write songs? How, how do I start writing lyrics or something? Well, if you want to get into using language, read a lot of poetry, get, uh, understand it, read it, what, know what poets do. But then somebody standing beside me goes, or just know what you want to say and say it, <laughs> you know, and, and both are true, but it's, it's, I mean, I, I just tend to complicate things for myself as much as possible in life generally. So, you know, <laughs> in, including in the writing, but, but somebody else can take a, like a head on approach like that and go, yeah, well, I want to say this. And then you just try to find a nice way to say it. A poem should be palpable and mute as a globed fruit, dumb as old medallions to the thumb, silent as the sleeve-worn stone of casement ledges where the moss has grown. A poem should be wordless as the flight of birds. A poem should be motionless in time as the moon climbs, leaving as the moon releases twig by twig the night-entangled trees. Leaving as the moon behind the winter leaves, memory by memory the mind. A poem should be motionless in time as the moon climbs. A poem should be equal to, not true, for all the history of grief, an empty doorway and a maple leaf, for love, the leaning grasses and two lights above the sea. A poem should not mean, but be. I was fired from a job because of Bruce Coburn. I was a relief disc jockey at the local radio station CJTT in New Liskert, Ontario. They had a sign on the desk that read, Banned songs do not play! There was only one song on the list, Rocket Launcher. I thought, how dare you? So, I played it. That was a Saturday. I was fired on the Monday. But I managed to slip in the Trojan horse for a moment. Make sure you listen to part two of my interview with Bruce Coburn. Thanks for surviving life with Les Stroud. We've been engineered by Keith Ullman, and we are part of the Apostrophe Podcast Network. All the rest was done by me. I carry the Pelican cases, set up the microphones, and press record. Keep listening, everyone. We'll figure this out. Oh, hey, wait a second. Sorry, one more thing. Totally forgot. This is my moment of shameless self-promotion. But if you are not yet watching my brand new series, Les Stroud's Wild Harvest, well, you need to. It's all about local foraging. And then I'll go out and I'll show you a number of plants and I'll bring them back into a kitchen or a cookery outdoors or somewhere where Chef Paul Rogalski will turn them into an incredible meal. You got to see this show, Les Stroud's Wild Harvest. It's airing now on a public television station near you. And if the public television station near you is not airing it, then email them, phone them, show up on their doors, blackmail them, do whatever you have to do to get Les Stroud's Wild Harvest on their station so that you can watch it. The second part of the self-promotion is for this channel, if you're watching this, and if you're not, this channel is 
the YouTube channel, Survivor Man Dash Les Stroud. I have a ton of stuff on there. I really got on the game for YouTube about six or eight months ago, and I have been populating it with all kinds of material. New stuff, archive stuff, all kinds of information from how-tos to Survivor Man episodes to Survivor Man Bigfoot to director's commentary. So check out my YouTube channel, Survivor Man Dash Les Stroud, because I am keeping it really, really active. So brand new series, Les Stroud's Wild Harvest. Don't forget my YouTube channel. And lastly, we are going back into the uh, the printers and by popular request, releasing again my 20th anniversary film collection. 76 films, every film I have made over the past 20, actually 25 years, to be honest with you, but 20 years. And it's available through the website, lestroud.ca. All right. Um, okay. I guess that's it. Thanks a lot for listening. And uh, I don't know. Go pour yourself a coffee and go listen to some more of my podcasts, if you so choose. Thanks, guys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 